Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science, studying birds, and in following Jesus. I help start Disciple Science to produce short videos and this podcast and other resources to show how integrating science and Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. I'm glad you're here to join me, an occasional guest, to explore the intersection of science and Christian faith. This week I was fortunate to speak with Dr. and Professor Greg Davidson about his recent book, Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. Greg is a geologist and a man of God who's been thinking and writing on the topics of science and Christian faith for decades. The interview ran for about an hour, so we're going to split it up into two different parts, and today you'll hear the first half, and next week you'll get to hear the conclusion. So without further ado, please enjoy part one of my conversation with Dr. Greg Davidson. I'm here today with Dr. Greg Davidson, who is a professor and department chair of geology and geological engineering at the University of Mississippi. His day job includes research in geochemistry and hydrology, with lots of time spent in the cypress swamps of Mississippi. I'd like to hear more about that. Uh, his dissertation at the University of Arizona included many hours in the same radiocarbon lab that dated the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Shroud of Turin. He had an upbringing as the odd and wonderful product of having two preachers for grandfathers and a biologist for a father, raised to uniquely appreciate God's written and natural world. Later concerns over misconceptions about both science and the Bible have led to speaking engagements across the United States and several continents, and publications of numerous articles and books. Uh, books include full-color multi-authored Grand Canyon, Monument to an Ancient Earth, and most recently, Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for uh, the invite. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. We've had a few conversations about the uh, possibility of collaborating and using your expertise on geology and radiocarbon dating and age of the earth and those topics which are a little bit outside of my comfort zone and I'm excited to work with you in the future. But today we're going to talk mostly about a book that you recent pu recently published, Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. And actually, before we even get into that, I'm interested in, in your background with your uh, preacher grandfathers and your biologist fathers. Did they model this uh, kind of a healthy interaction of science and faith for you? Or is that something that was there was tension around it? Or is this something you had to figure out on your own? I feel amazingly blessed that I did not grow up experiencing any of that tension. <laughs> yeah. That with that, you know, it, was, it wasn't just the combination of having some preachers and a biology professor. Yeah. It was having preachers who valued science and a biology scientist professor who valued his Christian faith. Yeah. So those were talked in the same context uh, with some regularity. And, and I think a big part of that was I was actually encouraged from a, a very young age to never just accept something because somebody in authority said it, yeah. but to actually always you know, be that Berean and go back and investigate and see if it was really so. So I, that was the kind of upbringing I had that really spared me a lot of the angst that people feel today. Wow. And it wasn't until seeing other people get torn up by this that I, I got into the fray. Yeah, well, I, well I, can, I can relate to that to some degree. I think my parents encouraged that, but I feel like we also didn't talk about it a whole lot. 
you know, personally, I, I did wrestle with this for years before I came to peace with it. And my parents have said in hindsight, we, we wish we would have talked to you more about that. We wanted to let you figure it out for yourself. And maybe we could have spared you some of that pain. So good, good for your, for your family for modeling that so well and encouraging you to be an independent thinker. Yeah, they, they chose other things not to talk about that I got to experience pain in. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> now, your, uh, your latest book, as I mentioned, is called Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. And this is a partial reworking of a, a previous book that was called um, When Science and Faith Collide. Is that right? What, tell me about yeah, that's correct. Why, you, why you wrote that first book and why you decided to, to revise it and update it. So the, the motivation for both the original and the revision was the same. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, when you write something like this, people naturally think that your primary objective is to try to convince people to think the way that you do, sure. uh, which, I mean, if people, if I do convince people to think the way I do, great. Uh, <laughs> but that's not actually the primary objective. Um, the objective was really thinking of two different target audiences. The first being those people that are, that are just really struggling yeah. with a sense that their faith and the science are in conflict and, they, they, and they're, they're torn between which way to go. And it's yeah. trying to demonstrate and give them a resource that says there's not nearly as much conflict as you've, you've been told. Yeah. Uh, the second is to the, the church at large, where even if they don't, you know, after reading the book, they're not convinced to believe as, as I do. Yeah. If they come away from it and just say, oh, all right, I, I, I get why Joe mm. sitting three pews back yeah. has this view that he does, that there's actually a biblical basis for it. Yeah. I, you know, he's, he's, he's not a reprobate. Uh, mm -hmm. We can actually have fellowship consider this to be a peripheral issue and focus on Christ. So that's the motivation for the two books. So, all right, so why a new book and why a, a new title? Mm -hmm. uh, it got a new title in part because of being picked up by uh, Kriegel Publications. Yeah. And, and they have something to say about titles. Sure. <laughs> uh, but it was also because when, some years ago, when a friend of mine was pitching the book to somebody else in my hearing. Yeah. And when he said, well, you know, it's, it's called When Faith and Science Collide, but it's really not about the collision of them. It's about the reconciliation. And I went, oh, all right. So the title's not really communicating yeah. what the book is about. Uh, the new title does communicate that more. And the need for the revision was in 10 years, an amazing amount of new science has come out. Yeah. And while the Bible hasn't changed any, the, there's been an opportunity for theologians to interact with that new science. And, and so there's lots of new material in the book, in the revision, that uh, addresses what theologians are saying about this as well. Yep. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think, um, you know, you and I, I think, come from a, a similar background in that we have a very high view of scripture and we allow the Bible to, to guide our beliefs, even in things that don't make sense, like the resurrection of a person that's been dead for a long time, right? For a couple of days, at least. Right. Um, and so it's not that we don't trust the Bible, but, but I think, you know, there's an a, a idea that, that not all of scripture is written to, to teach us science or, or maybe precise history. So um, as people with a high view of scripture, how do you approach 
what we perceive as conflicts uh, between between what we get out of those scripture and, and what we learn from the natural world. Right. So it's it's natural, understandable that people would pick up a book like this and mm -hmm. see, oh, this has been written by a geology professor at a secular university. Mm -hmm. uh, he probably has been convinced by the science and he's trying to find a way to make his faith fit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's actually quite the opposite. My, my starting point is the truth of scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, but having said that, I try to remind myself that my understanding of the Bible is not the same as the Bible. Yeah. So yeah. when the sciences kick up something that seems to be in conflict, not necessarily with the Bible, but with my understanding of the Bible, yeah. then I want to have the humility to let that question that's come out of God's creation yeah. to drive me back to scripture and see if maybe I miss something. Yeah. Uh, and I think a, a, an example is this would be a good place for an example of that, that, yeah, that if yeah, we look, please. if we look back in history and think of, you know, 400, 500 years ago, that when people considered a verse out of Psalms and Psalm 90, 93, that talks about the earth being fixed on its foundations and will not be moved, mm -hmm. that for millennia, people understood that to have probably two meanings. Uh, one was at a spiritual connotation of God's providence, yeah. that you know the earth is fixed, will not be moved, that the idea was that God has the earth in his hands. Yeah. Uh, the second was a statement about the physical realm, mm. that the earth is stationary right. and the stars and the sun go around it. So it's not till Galileo, Copernicus and then Galileo come along that are studying God's creation that say, eh, I don't think so. Yeah. I think that the sun is is like if anything's fixed, it's the sun, and we're going around the sun. Mm -hmm. So, of course, a lot of people just reacted to that and said, "No, the scriptures have spoken." Other people, believers that that value the authority of God's word, looked at it and said, "Well, let me go back to the scripture, take another look, and with that question in hand, realize that hey, you know, Psalm 16 has David talking about." God being at his right hand, therefore he, David, will not be moved. It's the exact same, yeah, it's the exact same Hebrew expression. Yeah. So, all right, well, David obviously was not talking about his geographical position, right? That because God is at his right hand, okay, now David can't move forward, back, right, left. You know, he's fixed in place. It, it's clearly talking about God's providence. So using scripture to understand scripture, I then realized that, oh, I, I can now go back to Psalm 93 and realize that the, the, the original understanding was always true, still is true about God's providence. There was just this extra layer that humans had assumed that was talking about the natural position of the sun in the celestial sphere that, that was not correct. Yeah, I mean, that account of Galileo and Copernicus and wrestling with the Christian church was so helpful to me in my discovery and exploration of this topic years back. And I wonder if you have some insight about what, why that didn't deal with, with more of these problems. You know, I think that even people that hold to this young earth creationist view are comfortable with uh, heliocentrism, I hope, right? Uh, most of them are. Um, and, and yet they're, they're still wrestling over 
other areas of scripture. So why, why is it that people are willing to accept that in one corner of, of the Bible in Joshua or Psalms or, or Exodus, but then when they revert back to Genesis, they're still, you know, want to say we can't allow that same approach to inform our understanding of those verses. Yeah, so it's a combination of things. Uh, one of them is good. Mm. It is a desire to honor scripture, to be true to scripture, and to not let culture and society erode yeah. at our, our, you know, what we consider to be the truth of, of God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but another part of it that's more on the, the, the negative side is we don't have what some people would call institutional memory, mm-hmm. where we tend to think that if our, you know, our parents thought a certain way and our grandparents thought a certain way, that, well, Christians have always thought that way that that we forget that there's these centuries and millennia of belief that have not always been the same now they i I have to say they it's not the core doctrines that have changed but some of these peripheral issues have changed so what we don't realize is that we've had 400 years of our preachers and pastors and church leaders who have been affirming heliocentrism and saying that scripture is not teaching something contrary to that science. And, and so the church has kind of compartmentalized it Mm -hmm. where they, they haven't felt the need to study that themselves. Mm -hmm. They've simply accepted what their leadership has told them. And now there's this sense as if, questions about the age of the earth and adaptation of life is, is all of a sudden something new and unique. And they don't realize that the same kinds of investigations and angst were going on back in the time of Galileo when they didn't have that history of their church leaders having already worked through these things and and settled them. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating that the, the, the role of church leadership is so, so important. And again, in my journey, and it seems like in yours, um, hearing from church leaders that held these positions and actually discovering that even, uh, you know, millennia back, you know, origin and other uh, uh, um, early church fathers didn't necessarily see everything as a historical narrative in the early chapters of Genesis. And um, well, the, the irony the irony yeah. of that, what you just brought up, is that that there's this sense in which the the young Earth, Earth organizations are, are you know towing the line of traditional belief, right. and there there's not a re- realization that they've actually adopted a secular understanding of scripture, yeah. because what they've done is they've said that science is the highest truth. Therefore, if Genesis one is true, it must be scientific. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's that's not that's a, a biblical approach. approach. Yeah. That's a secular approach to understanding right. the Bible. Yep. So if you look at, at the history of, of uh, theologians wrestling with Scripture and understanding it, there's a rich understanding of the use of poetic language and yeah. uh, figurative expressions that are all still, you know, that they're not invalidating the sense that something is history. So we actually, we get these false dichotomies where we're told, you know, we're asked questions, you know, is Genesis history or is it myth? Yes. And what they mean by that is, 
is it my definition of history, which is a literal understanding, or is it mythology, when the, the, that's an absolutely false right. choice. Yep. That within the Bible, we find ample examples of things that are expressed, the, of historical uh, occurrences or events yep. that are described in poetic language. Yep, yep. Yeah, and boy, that I think to credit your young earth creationist groups, they have very effectively convinced people that that is that is a true dichotomy that they that people have to choose and it seems like if, if being forced to choose you know some people are walking away from their faith because they say well just, the bible doesn't adhere to my sense of reality anymore or they you know sort of dig into this uh, insulated um, church community that ignores science um, in your years of, of experience lecturing and teaching and you know, sitting over meals and breaking bread with people. That, but what is it that that opens people up to seeing this? Maybe not not new to scripture, but new to them. This idea that that scripture might not be written with this uh, post enlightenment view that we all do of of how to of how to read truth. So I don't I don't know that there's any correct way. Uh, But for me, it's been a couple things. One is to start with affirmations Mm -hmm. that that I can affirm with them a litany of core doctrines of the faith. So that at least, you know, takes an edge off of, you know, am I really just a a closet, theologically liberal professor that's just trying to, you know, get a wedge in to to open up Pandora's box. So that's helpful. And and seeing what I hope is communicated is is a genuine love for Jesus, love for the Bible, love for the church that's motivating this. Uh, A second thing is drawing attention to the history again. Mm-hmm. where it's it's kind of walking people through you know and in fact I, I i've got one um one of the lectures that i'll give is asking the question should science ever be allowed to influence our understanding of the bible yeah. and and sort of the knee-jerk reaction is well no and then it's like okay well now let's go walk back through history and yeah. go through this galileo experience and we realize that oh we we, we already did that yeah. and actually our understanding of the Bible is better for it that no core doctrines were undermined and yet our understanding now is better than it was as a result of letting God's creation raise questions that brought us back Uh, so those those are two of the things that I I found very helpful with getting people to stop and say oh all right let me let me think about this yeah yeah, I think that's important because the, the slippery slope argument is is brought out so often. I think it does give peace to, to convince people that you are just as enamored with Jesus as they are and that it hasn't led you into some, uh, you know, liberal faith, if we want to use that term. Um, and, and for me, discovering that history just, just allowed me to sleep peacefully at night, you know, and so I think that that's a that is important to communicate because I think a lot, there are just a lot of people that have just never heard this stuff. Um, and, and, and hearing it hopefully will, will give them a little bit of peace. Uh, now in your book, you um, deal with the, what I think are kind of the three dominant 
perspectives on origins, right? We have kind of this young earth creationist group which sees the earth and the universe and everything as, you know, six to 10,000 years old. And the old earth creationists which see an old earth and um, a progressive creation miraculously and then evolutionary creationists that see an old earth and God using the evolutionary process. But you introduce a, another model, um, what something that you, you call young earth evolutionists, which seems a little oxymoronic, but you, per, you, you uh, paint a pretty compelling case that that's, that's the dominant approach of modern young earth creationism. Can you explain that to people, what that means and um, how that's guiding this, uh, the origins debate? Happy to. And that's, <laughs> that's one of those, these areas where the common perception and the reality are, are just absolutely worlds yeah. apart. Yeah. So it, it comes back to that secularization of the, the, the interpretation of scripture where yep. science is elevated as the highest truth. Yep. So if the creation story and if the flood story uh, are true and you have come, if you've approached it with this worldview of science is the highest form of truth, mm -hmm. then these must be scientific accounts. The earth must be very young. Um, all of these dead buried things in the ground must be from some catastrophic event. The only option we have is the flood. And so you have this domino effect of all these things that must be. Yeah. So in that progression, they themselves came to the realization that you cannot fit all of the world's species, even the ones just alive today, let alone mm -hmm. extinct species yeah. on the ark. Yeah. What do you do? Well, you start getting creative. Yeah. So looking at the, you know, where do we have wiggle room? Well, you look at the biblical kind that's talked about in the creation story and in the flood mm -hmm. story. And I, I will grant that that's not a precisely defined term in scripture. Yeah. Yeah. So they looked at that and said, well, kind may be broader than what people have commonly thought. Um, so that perhaps there was a much smaller number of different kinds of organisms on the earth at that time. And all they had to do was bring a pair of a cat kind on the ark and a dog kind and a ruminant kind. And then after the ark, a whole lot of them immediately went extinct, didn't survive. Right, so yeah. all of the dinosaurs, all of the, the petrosaurs, all yeah. of those, none of, you know, the, the, the woolly mammoths and all of it, none of them made it. Right. Uh, but the ones that did started to rapidly evolve yeah. so that in the matter of a few generations, uh, say that single cat kind ended up giving rise to all the modern lions, tigers, panthers, cougars, ocelots, cheetahs, leopards, bobcats, lynx, uh, house cats, and all of the saber-toothed cats that didn't make it to today. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's not just evolution. That's evolution on steroids. Yeah, right. Yeah, super fast. Yeah. Now, you know, the, the science of that is an important question. Yeah. But to me, actually, the, the, the bigger issue is the theological one. Mm -hmm. Because the church at large doesn't realize just how far that has migrated away from biblical orthodoxy. Yeah. 
when we go back to that biblical kinds and you consider when Genesis 1 was written, that the Israelites are living in a land where all their neighbors believe in this pantheon of gods that are kind of continuous with nature. Mm -hmm. And nature itself is an outgrowth of capricious gods who are battling with each other. It's chaotic. There's no reason to expect any kind of order. Yeah. And depending on the whims of the gods, a sheep could give birth to a goat. Yeah, right. Genesis comes along. God says, uh, no. Yeah. The creation reflects me. It yeah. reflects, I. It, it is orderly. Yeah. That it is not at the whim of gods. That yeah. you can yeah. count on me, or that, that nature being orderly in the sense where he actually specifically expresses producing after their kind, meaning that in a, in a human experience, so not over millions of years, but within human experience, sheep are going to give birth to sheep. Goats are going to give birth to goats. Yeah. The, the young earth position has now migrated to where it's essentially back at those ancient Near Eastern pagan understandings yeah. of nature being chaotic and some of the leading young earthers now come very close to saying that this adaptation from the ark was so fast, a sheep could have given birth to a goat. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's, that's shocking and remarkable. I mean, even if you just go back in time, 20 or 30 years, and people wrestling with Stephen Jay Gould and punctuated equilibrium and what he proposed is fairly rapid change, although rapid in geological scales over many right. years or so. And then they're shrinking that down to a matter of decades, maybe a cent couple centuries, you get all this yeah. diversity. Oh, so if you go back 20 years and look yeah. at the young earth literature and just catalog all the things that were being ridiculed yeah. as you know, just absolutely impossible by the, the evolutionary scientists, yeah. uh, they have not only embraced virtually all of those things, yeah. but the, you can even find places where they claim to be either the originators of those ideas or that, that a creation model actually explains those things much better than a conventional evolutionary model. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I haven't been uh, as, as deep in the literature as you have from this perspective, and do they have explanations for why it happens so readily and so rapidly? after the flood, but why it's slowed down so dramatically now. And we, we do see the development of new species, but it's uncommon and it's gradual. Right, so the, the argument is twofold. One is that these, these basal kinds are, are front loaded with the genetic makeup oh, yeah. to allow for diversification. Yeah. Um, the, you couple that with in their thinking, a radically changed landscape after the oh, flood that then has an environmental factor that's driving the speciation. Just now, adaptive radiation. Yeah. Right. Now, a major problem with that is if it's this radically altered landscape that is driving the adaptation where they need to adapt to survive, yeah. the, the, the organisms leaving the ark actually have to be able to survive at all yeah. if they're going to reproduce. And if they can survive long enough to reproduce, then they don't actually have to change that quickly. Yeah. They, yeah. they already have what they need in order to survive. Mm. Um, now, the, the other, the, the last part of that, why, why don't we see it today? 
would be a combination of the, uh, they're not suddenly facing these radically altered landscape. Yeah. Uh, and, and I haven't actually seen this, but I suspect that it's part of the thinking that the idea is that as the uh, different populations have migrated and adapted, that they've begun to lose a lot of that plasticity. Yeah, right. That they're no longer they're no, no longer carrying that genetic Genetic adaptability that their ancestor, their common ancestor did. Yep, yep. And I suppose, you know, the the environment is stabilized and the niches are are full. That that kind of makes sense, okay, as I'm thinking through it now, but but I can see where they can rationalize it. Yeah, well, and another aspect of that that doesn't make any biblical sense is that if God goes to the trouble of rescuing at all of these different animals. Yeah. And, and actually that's explicit in the text yeah. that they were brought onto the ark for the preservation of, of life to allow vast numbers of species to immediately go extinct. Yes, it, right. it just, just makes no biblical sense. Yes, yeah, right, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to the first part of this interview with Greg Davidson. We'll start the second half next week, so stay tuned to hear the rest of our conversation. Disciple Science exists to show how integrating science and Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. We're a nonprofit and we're fully crowdfunded, so everything we do is dependent on your generous support. You can give by visiting our website and donating through our secure support portal there, and everything you give is fully tax deductible in the United States. While you're there, you can also explore the rest of our resources and sign up for our newsletter or send us feedback about what you want to hear more about in the future. You can also help by rating and sharing our videos and podcasts. That really makes a big difference both to the podcast distributors and to YouTube. We'd also appreciate your support by commenting on the videos. Uh, YouTube really pays attention to audience engagement, as they like to call it, and just telling your friends about Disciple Science. I want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week.